This is Timothy. I've never put a yard sign in my yard, and I can't stand bumper stickers. And I'm Garrick, and one of the harder years of my life was when I found out that neither Santa Claus nor the Easter Bunny really existed. Well, one aspect of apologetics has to do with preserving the faith. And this week, we'll be looking at one of the primary ways that Christians have preserved the faith over the centuries, and that's creeds. Oh, I love creed. Huge fan. Scott Stapp and Mark Tremonti, I still listen on a daily basis to What's This Life For? And it's not that kind of creed, nor will it ever be on this oh, program. Well, that's that's good, because none of what I just said was true. So We're looking at creed in the sense of a confession of faith. And to understand the importance of creeds, we're going to look first this week at one of the earliest Christian creeds, and then we'll consider a secular creed that you may have seen on yard signs in your neighborhood. And then on the second half of the program, we're going to discuss one of the greatest live songs ever ever to explore how every human being is wired for worship. That song is U2's Where the Streets Have No Name. We are wired for worship and created for creeds this week on Three Chords and the Truth. Yeah, If you want to learn more about how Christians have declared their beliefs through confessions of faith throughout the history of the church, you can take a look at Baptist Confessions, Covenants, and catechisms from our friends at BNH Academic. That's Baptist Confessions, Covenants, and Catechisms, edited by Timothy and Denise George. Yeah, for, for more information, you can go check it out at bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the apologetics podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. This is a podcast about apologetics. So the question is, what do creeds, confessions, catechisms, what, do, what does this have to do with apologetics, the defending of the Christian faith? Well, I think in the early centuries of Christianity, what we see is that creeds really do become a means for the church to protect its theology and to fight against heresy. And that's part of apologetics. Part of apologetics is fighting against heresy, is protecting the theology, the beliefs, those essential doctrines of the church, because apologetics is not just giving answers to unbelievers. It's also providing answers for believers about why they believe what they believe, and to help them not to fall into error in their theology. And of course, the word creed comes from credo, which means I believe in Latin. And Philip Schaff is a theologian that wrote many years ago one of the standard works on creeds and confessions of faith. And in his words, he says, a creed is a confession of faith for public use or a form of words setting forth with authority certain articles of belief. And the fact is that wherever 
sure there is a community with shared beliefs, there will eventually be some sort of creed. That's one of the things we see all the way through history, that there will be certain words, certain phrases that get repeated to reinforce what holds a community together. Right. So wherever there are beliefs that bring people together, there there will be creeds, whether implicit or explicit. And it's a statement that arises from that which they already believe and they know. And perhaps the most important creed in the entire New Testament is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says to the Corinthians, for I passed on to you as of most importance that which I also received. In other words, I'm giving you something that I'm not changing this. I'm passing it on to you as I received it. And then the creed begins that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And what I always try to emphasize to people when I I work with this, this creedal statement is that if that is all we had, even if this statement is all we had, there is every reason to trust in who Jesus was. It's an affirmation of the Old Testament according to the scriptures. And you have someone who died and was raised from the dead and calls us to faith in him, even if God had not given us anything in the New Testament. Other than this one little statement, there is enough for us to be called to believe in, to trust in, to follow this man, Jesus Christ. And of course, an important point that we want to emphasize, we want everyone to hear, is that this shows that creeds are not an invention of the early church after the apostles have left the scene, right? It's not that the early church had gone off the rails and started inventing these statements of faith that have no basis in Scripture or the practice of creating creeds and confessions has no basis in Scripture, because that's just not the case. But the creeds we are focusing today are not the creeds of Scripture, not in the New Testament. We want to talk about some of the the earliest statements of the church. And one of the earliest that we have is called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You did not just say Catholic in there because we're Protestant, not only just Protestant, we are Reformed and Protestant, and we're like the Reformedest of all the Reformed Reformedists. Right. I mean, we're like canons of Dort, Calvin, Bavinck, yeah. Augustine, all these, and you just said the word Catholic. That's right, which many people in our circles are allergic to that word. In fact, I attend a church who recites the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis, and our church has made the decision to not put this word Catholic in front of anyone as a stumbling block, and instead says the universal church, the holy universal church, which is fine, is entirely acceptable, is part of the sense, though not exhaustive, of what Catholic means, but in certain situations... The word Catholic can only mean, can only refer to the Roman Catholic Church, which, if you're a Protestant, 
and you're a church history nerd like us, then what you would say about the Roman Catholic Church is that over time they changed the meaning of the word, that they took the word Catholic, which means universal, which means everywhere, everyone, the church, the faith, and means a lot of other things, but they made Catholicity reside in one particular place. They took the universal and attached it to the particular that is the Roman church, which is why the word bothers so many Protestants today. But I love the word Catholic because it comes from the Greek that means according to the whole. Mm -hmm. And what's important about the word Catholic that we do not get in the word universal is this statement of according to the whole is a declaration of this is what the whole of those who trust Jesus have believed throughout time. And you just don't get that in the word universal. You don't get that. In fact, I became even more allergic to the word universal and more in love with the word Catholic and why we need to explain it just recently. I was actually at a coffee shop and a couple of tables over and I was just listening because I found it very fascinating. There was a Roman Catholic priest Mm -hmm. who was doing premarital counseling, Mm -hmm. but he was a Roman Catholic priest from the left wing of the church. He did not even believe very clearly. He did not believe what we even know that the Roman Catholic Church does affirm. And here's one of the things that he said that I was like, if you ever read your own confessional documents, that's what I wanted to say. This is why you're not sharing names. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. This is actually a very popular priest here in Louisville. Mm. And I wanted so many times to just to say, do you not know what Thomas Aquinas said? Do you not know about this? But what he told the couple is he said, well, the word Catholic means universal, which means it includes all things. So if you want to practice other religious practices in your marriage, that can be part of Catholic. You can still call yourself Catholic and still incorporate those other practices because he said the word Catholic means universal, which means it includes everything in the world. And I thought, my goodness, we need to recapture this word and we need to state what it means because that is exactly what it doesn't mean is this idea of it being universal in that sense. And so anyway, I became more of a fan of the true meaning of this word after I heard this Roman Catholic priest actually just butcher this word. Just This was two days ago that this happened. Yeah. And on this topic, another quote from Philip Schaff. He says, as the Lord's prayer is the prayer of prayers, and the Ten Commandments is the law of laws, so the Apostles' Creed is the creed of creeds, because every phrase in the creed is grounded in the New Testament. Rationalistic opposition to the Apostles' Creed is an indirect attack upon the New Testament itself, but it will no doubt outlive these assaults and share in the victory of the Bible over all forms of unbelief. I love that declaration from Schaff is yep. that an attack on the Apostles' Creed is ultimately an indirect attack yep. on the New Testament itself, because indeed it is. And beginning in the second century, this creed really became a crucial tool to filter out heresy in the church. And I think it's just an important recognition for us. And if you don't know the Apostles' Creed, if you're not teaching your children the Apostles' Creed, then my encouragement is to you to develop this habit into your life of recognizing the beauty, the wonder, and also the value and the importance of this particular creed, because it has a deep and abiding value in the church. I've been so thankful for our church's move 
towards it. Not that our church has not always believed in the Apostles' Creed, but it's showing up in our different forms of gathering and worship, I'd say in the last year. So it's more attached to baptism now, and we recite it frequently in the worship surface. And it even has its place in our business meetings at times. And I've just been so thankful for that. It's really enriched our gatherings. And as we're moving into a more secularized world, Mm. I truly believe that the creeds must and should become more important in our churches. Which brings us back to your answer of what the creeds have to do with apologetics. And they have everything to do with apologetics because they allow us in a concise way to articulate what we believe to the world around us. And that also brings us to what I'm going to call a secular Mm. creed, because something that has become very popular recently is a declaration that is nothing less than a declaration of faith. I've seen it in my neighborhood, in several people's yards. I've seen it on the lawns of Unitarian Universalist churches in particular. And this statement that I'm getting ready to read is truly a creed. Even in the way it is phrased, it is a creed. And I want, as I read it, for you to recognize that what we're seeing is that even people who are secular, who have rejected any semblance of Catholic Orthodox Christianity, they have to come up with a creed. And here's this one that I've seen in my neighborhood several places, several times. It begins with the words, in this house, which reminds me of when Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The first words of it are in this house. And then it goes on and says, we believe. In other words, the very word, the very phrasing that we would recognize in the creeds of Christianity. In this house, we believe kindness is everything. Love is love. Science is real. No human is illegal. Women's rights are human rights and black lives matter. Now, that's a creed right there. That is a creedal statement in so many different ways. And I want us to recognize that even people who are rejecting Orthodox Christianity must have some degree and some type of creed. Now, we're going to walk through each of these statements in this secular creed just for us to get a taste of and to recognize how this secular worldview that's summarized in this creed actually is an incoherent hmm. Worldview. It begins with the words, kindness is everything. Now, we'd all say kindness is not a bad thing. Kindness is good. Kindness is a great thing. It's a virtue going all the way back to the Greek philosophers. Aristotle defined kindness as helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything, nor for the advantage of the helper. And so this idea of kindness, it's something that is a universal human longing and desire. But I will also suggest something that as a universal virtue to be shared with all people and especially to be extended toward those who are marginalized or disadvantaged, kindness is actually a distinctly Christian practice. There's an excellent book by O.M. Backey, is the last name, B-A-K-K-E, called When Children Became People. And what he demonstrated in that book is the idea of kindness and graciousness and value for children, for those who are are weak in society, actually didn't exist prior to Christianity. It is a Christian trait that has been worked into society. How does it work into it? 
by means of what people saw in Jesus. I think it's interesting. You probably couldn't say kindness is everything apart from some sort of a Christian background or foundation of which people are completely unaware of, apparently. And kindness towards others was a Christian virtue that was used by the earliest Christian apologists to make an argument for the validity or the goodness of Christianity, of the Christian faith. Right. Christians were considered to be people who were kinder to those around them than others. That was an argument for Christian faith. And so then the second part of this sort of secular creed is love is love. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Love is love. That's, yeah. It's what? called a tautology uh-huh. in logic where you're just saying the same thing twice. Love is love. But of course, but it means, we know what. Yeah. What does it mean here? I think what it means, it's probably a declaration of an affirmation of homosexual marriage, homosexual unions. Uh-huh. And so I think it's trying to say no one has the right to say that one expression of love is any more valid than any other expression of love. Now, first off, this is the ultimate assertion of human autonomy and individuality. Just recognize this. This is this ultimate assertion. I can choose what love looks like for me and nobody can judge what I decide love looks like. But at a deeper level, Almost no one actually takes this to the logical conclusion. Let's face it. There are expressions of quote unquote love where almost anyone is going to say, uh, not okay. no, that's not okay. That is a distortion. Exactly. Of, yeah. That's an improper form of love or the object of your love is not okay. And I think in this, what we're doing is recognizing from sort of a presuppositional apologetic point of view, what we're trying to show is the incoherence of any worldview that tries to build itself completely apart from any foundation in the word of God. And the next part of this secular creed is science is real. Real science. Real science. One of my science favorite, is real. Okay. Real science is one of my favorite uh, all-time 80s movies. So, <laughs> there you go. You know. What do we even mean by science is real? Again, most of us would say science is real. And I think probably what's being pushed here is the idea of climate change and evolution. But those are just kind of side issues compared to the real central issue, which is in this particular declaration, comes pretty close and functions in such a way of saying science is the arbiter of reality. Science is what determines everything that's real, which none of us actually live that way, but also it's a very convenient way to rule out almost everything about God and scripture where things happen not in a scientifically verifiable way, but rather much of what happens is history rather than science. Right, and what thinking Christians push back against is not science, but what we call scientism, which is exactly what you just described, Timothy, science as the ultimate or in some cases only source of verifiable truth. And I think about a book that's come out in the last couple of years that's very helpful in this discussion, or I I can think of a couple, but J.P. Moreland comes out with a book called Secularism and Scientism. A few years before that, where the conflict really lies by Alvin Plantinga, this is the argument. Christians aren't burying their heads in the sand and ignoring all scientific data and evidence. No, we're just saying that's not the only access that we have to truth. 
Yeah. And the next part of this is no human is illegal. And I understand and I actually empathize with many aspects of this declaration. No human is illegal because compassion, Christian compassion, compels us to treat everyone, immigrants included, with dignity, especially I think those seeking asylum. But my question about that is on what basis, if there is no transcendent God, if there is no distinct and unique value for human beings, that that's not possible apart from some sort of transcendent creator yes. God. Why should we treat those people, those children with dignity and with respect? Why should we consider asylum for people who are fleeing almost certain death? Why, apart from their being a transcendent God? Yeah. Another statement in this, women's rights are human rights, which on this question of are women to be treated with the same respect as men valued equally? Yes, 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 yes. But typically, we both know what's being implied in women's rights or human rights. Yeah, we're now having a discussion about the controversial topic of abortion and abortion rights. What we would say is that no one's rights are limitless. And to assert women's rights are human rights and to attach that to a certain position, a certain belief about abortion is to say that in this case, the woman's rights are hers and limitless and they override the rights of the baby. And that brings us to this last statement that's on some of these signs of Black Lives Matter. Now, in that, I think we need to recognize there's both a movement and there is an organization. And when I'm describing this, I'm not talking about the organization known as Black Lives Matter, but rather the sentiment and the movement. And I actually would agree Black Lives Matter. And I think we need to say that because Black Lives have historically not been treated as if they matter. Because even if, if we just look at our culture statistically, even if you control for all other factors, African Americans are far more likely than whites to be stopped and searched and handcuffed and subjected to non-lethal force by police, shot to death by police. We could go on with all sorts of different things about that that go all the way back to the fact that African Americans' ancestors were in enslaved and treated as if their lives didn't matter. I remember one of the first times that this struck me just hard was when we were in an adoption process and we were looking at infants and one of the adoption agencies had prices ranked by race. Oh. And it said at the top of this, it's going to do this price if you want a white female. It's going to be this price. It went all the way down and at the bottom of the list was African-American female, and then under that, African-American male. That's a value statement. It is a value declaration. And when I asked somebody at the adoption agency about that, is they said, we're just telling you the reality about supply and demand. The supply and demand means that the demand for an African-American male baby is lower than any of the others. And that's probably the time it hit me in a way that I'd never experienced it before of you just declared a value. Now, what I found out is that that adoption agency was just being honest. Every adoption agency was working with some right. semblance of that type of a ranking system. Some of them just weren't stating it explicitly. But what we see in that is there is literally a devaluation in our culture of African-American life. And it's not enough just to say all lives matter because the meaningfulness of all human lives has not typically been in question. 
the meaningfulness and the value of black lives has been in question. And I would say that all lives won't matter until black lives matter. And so in even saying that, though, even in affirming the sentiment behind the statement, here's my question. Hmm. How do you get to that point of declaring that black lives matter apart from every human being being created with equal dignity and equal value by a creator God. (laughs) That's why I believe black lives matter. That's why I believe it's wrong when black lives haven't mattered is precisely because I believe that every life is created with equal dignity, equal value by a creator God. And I think that brings us back to, if we come back then, to the Apostles' Creed, to the Nicene Creed, to those creeds such as that, what we have in them is a beautiful, coherent statement, a series of coherent declarations that do not contradict one another, and they give us every reason, every reason for us to believe in, for example, the human dignity of every person. We believe that. Why? Because I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in the words of the Nicene Creed that for us, all humanity, for us and for our salvation, that Jesus was made human. We believe what we believe because of a creator God who has sent Jesus into human flesh to take upon himself the punishment for the sins of all humanity and to proclaim justice for the poor, to proclaim righteousness for all who are separated from God, who will turn in faith and trust to him. That gives us the foundation for believing in human dignity and a foundation for affirming and living out this truth of life mattering. With that, it is time for the Infinity Gauntlet, which Garrett has once again bravely drawn forth. And as he has drawn forth this Infinity Gauntlet, he has pulled forth a question that is one of the most vexing questions of humanity, one of the most vexing questions of at least the fictional universes in which we find our heads wandering around at times. That's right. I like to call this question the battle of the super insects. So in a fight... Timothy, who would win between Ant-Man and Spider-Man? Ooh, Ant-Man and Spider-Man. Well, I think we have to first off recognize we've sort of seen this in Captain America Civil War. Yeah, sort of. Not completely, but we've we've sort of seen them go head-to-head at that point. There was a lot going on there, right? Right, exactly. So so if the two were in the arena in Thor Ragnarok, if they were like the pregame, right, the undercard before Hulk and Thor go at it, who do you think would win between the two? 
I'm not an Ant-Man fan. Well, that doesn't matter. But I think Ant-Man would win because just that capacity to get huge and small, yep. there's just something about that that it's really, really difficult. Yes. Even recognizing the fact that there's no physical way that he can actually pack a punch of the type he packs in the size when he goes small, all that, all that stuff aside. Yeah, we can't really yeah. bring reality yeah, into it because, when we're talking about exactly. superheroes. <laughs> we're I'm also talking, saying. you know, just reality. We've already right. pitched that out the That's window. Right. But I just happen to think that Ant-Man is going to triumph. Rock and roll. It's one of the greatest human inventions and one of the supreme expressions of God's common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with Bob Dylan and ended with Pearl Jam. And that is why each week in the second half of the program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for truth in classic rock. I'm Garrick from the 1980s. And I'm Timothy from the 1970s. And today, we're going to talk about worship, how every human being is made to worship, and how worship can also be dangerous in some ways. And the song that we're going to be looking at today is Where the Streets Have No Name from the 1987 U2 album, The Joshua Tree. And I can so still remember when I first heard this particular song because it didn't sound like anything else that was on the radio at the time. This long fade in of an organ kind of coming in and this guitar tone that didn't sound exactly like anybody else's. And then this song that just erupted with joy and with a sense of transcendence. It was just not like anything else that I had heard before. So, as some U2 nerdy fanboys, let's go ahead and talk about how did U2, the band, begin? Well, they began as a band in 1976, really started getting serious about their music in 1977, but they started when Larry Mullen, who was the drummer, put a note on the bulletin board at school and he wanted to start a band. And here's what he put on that particular note that he put on the bulletin board. He put money wasted on a drum kit. Anybody else done the same thing on guitars? <laughs> and so that was what That's he said. That's an excellent ad. That is a great way to start a band. They were originally called Feedback when they gathered together in 1976 because they gathered together in a kitchen and pretty much all they produced was feedback. They really weren't getting through any music very well. They changed their name then to The Hype, mm. uh, which that has that kind of punk feel that they were really going yep. for at that time. And then eventually they changed their name to U2 in part because it was mysterious. It could mean U2 as in you also. There was a spy plane, an American spy plane that was known as the U-2, and also, unbeknownst to many of us in the United States, what we call a D battery is in the rest of the world called a U-2 battery, and that was the type of battery, a D battery, that they were using in their cassette players and all of those things like that, and so because of that, this term U-2 was mysterious, and so they became U-2, it became the band.
So Paul Houston, who we know as Bono, and Larry Mullen and Dave Evans, who we know as The Edge, they were involved in this Christian community that was known as Shalom, that was this charismatic Christian community that met on Monday nights to pray and to study the Bible. And they were deep into the Bible. And so you start seeing early on in their music more and more just phrases and ideas that are theological and biblical in nature. You even have this entire song 40 that is Mm. Psalm 40 set to music, as well as just drawing imagery from the Bible throughout. Now, by 1982, this kind of shalom community had really turned cultic. And the leader of this group, he selected and he said that God had told him to select the most attractive girl in this particular group to be his wife. And they became very fundamentalist and very cultic to the point that eventually there was a group that was known as the Virgin Prunes, a music group. So you two and the Virgin Prunes were both part of the Shalom community, and they were musicians. And so that came to the point at which the group told the Virgin Prunes that they had to change their name to the Deuteronomy Prunes <laughs> to be able to stay in the group Shalom. That is when cult gets weird. Yeah. Uh, when- <laughs> I would argue that the Virgin Prunes is already a terrible band name, but the Deuteronomy Prunes would be worse. It is definitely worse. And so because of this, and as a result of this, U2 and the Virgin Prunes, not the Deuteronomy Prunes, they refused at that point. They both left the Shalom community. And yet, even though they left the Shalom community around 1982, these religious values really stayed strong in U2. And we've got to remember that the religion that they had seen was conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Dublin. You think about that they had seen political institutions that were tied to ethnic identity, and then that was tied to religious identity. And in Northern Ireland, the Protestants had really marginalized the Roman Catholics. We've got to remember that in in August of 1969, so within their living memories, the Northern Ireland riots marked the beginning of what were called the Troubles in Ireland. That is this conflict, this religious conflict, and that was followed by the rise of the official Irish Republican Army and this Marxist movement that wanted to remove Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom. And there was violence going both ways on both sides. And throughout this, it was about religious rhetoric. And so that was the religion that they had seen, and then they became involved in this community, this shalom community that seemed to be a religious faith that wasn't tied to Catholic and Protestant. And so that really attracted them, and they remained, even after that, people who were reading the Bible, who were studying the scriptures. But we also have to remember that this impacted their music as well, because January 30th, 1972 was Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Mm -hmm. which was a outbreak of violence in the village of Derry in Northern Ireland. So we get to the Unforgettable Fire, fourth studio album. U2 is a known commodity at this point. But how does America feel about you too at this point 
Well, in the early 1980s, they actually didn't expect to gain very many fans in the United States. Remember, this is a surge of conservatism in the United States. This is the Reagan Revolution, this surge of patriotism and nationalism. And those things don't really fit with a lot of the things that U2 is saying in their songs about peace between people, about bringing people together in peace. That doesn't fit with the Reagan Revolution. And I think that's why it catches on in the United States, mm. that clean living, religious imagery, that actually captures the conservative kind of surge in the 1980s, which is fascinating yes. that it captures that group of people in the 1980s. And not only that, U2 is, is involved as well as are many bands in some of these things with Ethiopian famine relief. We've talked about this before, and this is one of the ways that U2 really rises to prominence in the United States is during Live Aid. Now, Live Aid was the follow-up to those two singles, We Are the World and Do They Know It's Christmas to Raise Money for the Famine in Ethiopia. And during that concert, U2 just absolutely steals the show, at least in the minds of people in the United States. They become a hit then. And then a couple of months after that, Bono actually goes with his wife, Ali, to Ethiopia with World Vision, and they go and actually see these orphans and things like that. So it's just this weird juxtaposition of all these different worlds together. But after Live Aid, U2 really becomes a known entity in the United States. Right, right. So what changed about U2 when they became this hit in the U.S.? Well, this is one of the things I find most fascinating about the Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum as well. So what Bono began to realize, which I, I find fascinating, is that the deep weakness in their music, which had been kind of rooted in punk, mm -hmm. and then later it was rooted in sort of this ethereal music that Brian Eno had been producing, their music lacked any roots. He said, we had had a year zero concept about our music where we are just going to ignore all past music and we're just going to create music that starts over all new, mm. which of course, as we know, that's this absolute mark of modernity right. in the modern world. This idea that we can just absolutely extricate ourselves from all past realities right. and start de novo, brand new. We can, that's something that we, can, we feel like yeah. we can do. We can wipe the slate clean, right? And 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 it's just not the case. He realizes that you can't do that. He actually recognizes that. And when he recognizes that is when he gets invited to jam with the Rolling Stones and they start working through playing the blues, just playing standard blues chords progressions and jamming. And Bono can't do it. Yeah. He has no clue how to jam with the blues. And he got to know Bob Dylan around that time. And he admitted to Bob Dylan, he said, the music of U2 is in space somewhere. There's no particular roots of heritage for us. Now, of course, there were roots to their music. They just didn't know about them. But Dylan said, well, what you got to do is reach back. You've got to reach back to the roots of your music. You've got to find the roots of your own 
music. And that's what Bono tried to do on the next album, which was The Joshua Tree. And they began recording The Joshua Tree in 1986. And this is the album that would become their magnum opus, but they started recording it in 1986. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you just say that they began recording this album in 1986? Yes, the 1986. As, As in the greatest year of rock and roll history. It is. And the greatest year of movie history, mm-hmm. Iron yes. Eagle, Top yes. Gun, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that very 1986 that even produced Living on a Prayer yes. by Bon Jovi. I can truly say that the first seven songs of this album are probably all in my top 10 favorite U2 songs. I will admit that there are some songs on this album that I have to go look at to remind myself what song is this but seven of these the whole side a mm-hmm. of joshua tree just blows me away and i'll have to admit it's actually not my favorite u2 album i'm totally great with that. baby is by far my f- favorite u2 album but this one did something that had not been done before absolutely. it absolutely broke new ground in an amazing way but it didn't begin as the joshua tree no, it did not. the working title when they were working on it was the two americas and what bono said is i have two conflicting visions of america one is kind of a dream landscape and the other is kind of a dark comedy. And you hear both of those in the Joshua tree, even the name Joshua tree. Joshua trees are these particular yucca trees that are in the Mojave Desert. And in the 19th century, the Mormon settlers who were going from San Bernardino, California to Utah, they saw these trees and they called them Joshua trees because they felt like they were pointing them on their way to Utah, which was for them going to be their promised land. And I say that because it captures both the darkness and the dream of America because Mormonism is the most American of all religions because it's a faith that was completely fabricated, but it was fabricated in America and it places America at the very center of all of God's plans. And if we look at Mormon history, it is a dream and a dark comedy At the same time, there's dreams and darkness, and it puts America at the very center, not only America at the center, but it puts the center of America at the center, because where Jesus is supposedly going to return, according to Mormon theology, is Independence, Missouri. Independence, Missouri. So these Mormon settlers moving from San Bernardino to Utah, they named these yucca trees the Joshua trees. That's what they named them. And U2 picks up on that in their album. And I think it really does summarize both the dream and the darkness of America. So the Joshua tree as an album is released on March 9th, 1987, (laughs) making it a mere three months late in which it would have cemented 1986 as the uncontested greatest year of rock and roll ever. And the opening song is the one we're going to focus on today of where the streets have no name, which came about because The Edge, the guitar player for U2, was looking for and trying to create the ultimate concert song 
ever. Right. That's what he was trying to do. That's what he was trying to accomplish. Which we think he did, of course. The inspiration for the song was Bono's response, when it comes to the lyrics, Bono's response to this, this idea, this claim, that a person's identity is evident by the street that they grew up on. As if you could know something essential about another human being just from the context which they grew up in. Which he had seen that in his growing up years in a context where there were Protestants and there were Catholics and one of his parents was Protestant, the other one was Catholic. And so there were certain sections of town where certain people that was their faith in this section of town, as well as economic issues being determined. And still in our world today, there are economic issues that we can say, okay, you live on that side of this particular street. And it's his declaration, a beautiful declaration of saying, in essence, there's an identity that transcends the street you were born on, the street you grew up on. There's an identity that's bigger than that. And it's just a beautiful declaration at that level. And he talks about a trip that he took to Ethiopia in which he noticed that streets there actually didn't have names, right? And so he uses that experience to push back on this idea and this ideal that he has of what a rock concert ought to be. All of these individuals, if you would, from different circumstances and contexts, from growing up on different streets, coming together in one place, and their identities, in that sense, melting away, and where they're united in this beautiful moment and event. And consciously or not, this song, I think, for those that experience it live, somewhat achieved it. But its live version is a different story than the making of this song. This was one of the most difficult songs in terms of recording processes, right? You talk about the musical aspect of this. Right. It starts out first with this very long keyboard introduction, but it's very odd because the early part of the guitar part is in 6-8, and then it switches to 4-4, but you never really consciously know when it switches. And if you're trying to play it, if you're thinking about the switch from 6-8 to 4-4, you miss it. You can only just feel it. It's a good song. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's a great song Mm -hmm. on the studio album, but it doesn't become a classic. It doesn't become this powerful song until you see it live. Just a couple of years ago, we saw it live at the Papa John Stadium in Louisville during the Joshua Tree tour of U2, the 30th anniversary, and as if the song couldn't get any better. I mean, it was amazing, and it was the whole crowd. It was just an electrifying experience. And right as the drums came in in the intro, an airplane came over the stadium landing at the airport, which is, of course, really close to the stadium there. And this airplane just roared right over the stadium, this jetliner. And it was as if you could not have orchestrated that any better than it was. But it was probably in my entire life of all the dozens upon dozens of concerts I've seen, probably the most sublime moment in any concert Mm. that I've ever been to. Yeah. So random question off the script here. Still to this day, when I listen to the song, I almost only listen to live versions, right, that have have been recorded. Can you think of, off the top of your head, I didn't prepare you for this, can you think of what your favorite 
version to listen to is? If you're going on to your phone and you're going to go search for Where the Streets Have No Name, which one will you usually pick? There is one super obscure version of it in when she actually sings Amazing Grace over those the, yeah. those keyboard chords leading up into the song. And so what we're saying here is that in a sense, you use the word sublime, it almost feels like a worship experience when you're at a live show. Why? What is it about it that that's the case? Because there actually is something in this song, even beyond that reality, that awakens worship or awakens a sense of longing, of yearning, of transcendence within us in both the words and in the music itself. And I think that's because, as we've already mentioned, human beings are wired for worship. Yeah. We've said things like this. We've touched on this idea before. But if you hold a certain view of God and you you hold a certain view of God as creator of all that we know and see and experience in a sense, then you have no problem. In fact, you ought to come to this place where you would expect for things that are creative, things that are beautiful, regardless of whether they are explicitly religious or spiritual, that there is something about creation in this sense, when we're talking about a song, that will speak to you, that will touch on your emotions. And we've talked about part of that reason and where that could come from and even negative aspects of it. But the good of that is that's how God created us. One of our favorite old dead theologians, John Calvin, speaks of this, what we call a sense of divinity. It comes from a fancy Latin word, but Timothy's always the one who gives you the fancy Latin. And John Calvin says, because of this sense of divinity, because of this awareness of divinity, maybe a more helpful word, every human being knows that there is one God who created the cosmos and deserves worship. And that's what we see, this idea of this sensus divinitatis, this <laughs> sense of divinity, yes, that Calvin mentions right here, that Calvin describes, he's recognizing that we know, every human being knows intrinsically mm. that we are to worship. We just know this, and certain things awaken that within us. Now, the problem is, of course, is due to our fall into sin. Again, quoting Calvin here, and this is from his commentary on Romans. He says, our discernment fails us before it determines who God is or which God is to be worshiped. Yep. He says that you have this sense of divinity, you have this awareness, you know you're supposed to worship, every human being does, but our discernment fails before we know which divinity it is that we ought to worship. And so what do we do? When our emotions are awakened, we worship 
nature. We may worship music. We may worship movies. We may worship just the emotion of feeling like we're all together with tens of thousands of people in a concert venue. We worship something at that point because we have a deep sense and a deep awareness that something more is out there and that there is a God who we are to worship. But the truth is we don't want to worship the true God in our flesh. We don't want to worship the true God in our fallen human nature. And so we, when those feelings are awakened, we will seek out and find something else to worship. Yeah, related to that, and because I have to get in my Bavink quote, Bavink, who wants to sound almost exactly like Calvin on this point, who follows him so closely, says that this sense of divinity really is the basis for all religion, that religion would not exist without it. And that's essentially what Timothy just said, that because we have this sense of something larger than ourselves, even if we reject an explicit belief of it, we believe it exists and it leads to worship and it it leads to these creeds, to point back to the earlier discussion, that it's going to result in these things. And the difference between those of us who profess faith in the Christian God and those who reject it is the result, is simply the result. It's not the presence of this sense of divinity or of belief. It's the result, the content, if you would. Right. It's what we direct our worship yes. toward. The sense is the same, but we actually direct it in different ways. And one of the things that we begin to see in the 19th and 20th centuries, especially among theologically liberal theologians, is that the experience or the sense of divinity itself becomes its own goal, we might say, becomes its own thing that people are to aspire to. We see that in a guy named Frederick Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher? He is known as the father of Protestant theological liberalism. And Frederick Schleiermacher basically said that this awareness of absolute dependence, this das schlechtenigen abhankengeitsgefühl, that this awareness of absolute dependence is, according to him, the core of all religion. That's all there really is. And we should just work to bring our lives into conformity and to congruity with the feeling itself, the awareness, the sense itself. And he just simply believes Christianity is the highest expression of that. Yeah. And even in today's church, while no one remains Schleiermachian, right? There never was a school of Schleiermacher. Theologically, we don't follow him anymore, but we see his traces throughout today's church in that this emotional experience, what so many call worship, maybe isn't thought of as the essence of Christianity, but certainly the quality or, I don't know, the level or whatever you would say of one's faith is so tied to this experience that the Christian life has largely been turned into a series of experiences of God. And if we're a believer, what that census divinitatis ought to do is to turn us toward worship of the true God. But if somebody's an unbeliever, 
it's either going to cause that person to worship something else other than the true God, or it's going to cause them just to make that feeling, that sense of transcendence, its own goal, where they're just seeking a greater sense of transcendence, a deeper feeling of this. But either way, it draws the unbeliever further from the true God. That's what it does for the unbeliever. So getting back to the song, what would you say that we are seeing? and feeling when we are deeply moved by where the streets have no name? Well, I think the music itself Mm -hmm. is part of that. We have to recognize that we live in a world that God has infused with such beauty and creativity that it does awaken in us. Sometimes there are certain feelings that are awakened by the music itself. That's not a bad thing. No, we don't fault people for marveling at the ocean or the mountains or whatever scenery it is that evokes something inside you. We would never fault someone for that. No, that's in fact what those things are supposed to do. Now, what we should do when we engage somebody who has sensed that is for us to help them understand, here's why Mm. you have this sense of transcendence when you hear this song, when you see this sight. Here's why is because God created you for your attention to be turned to him and to worship of him. So the music itself does something. And I think the words are really important as well, because the words of this particular song, they awaken in us a longing that God has put there, which is a longing for a place where something defines us and draws us together other than where we came from. Yeah. But of course, in God's design, he intends that identity. It isn't about where you came from, that identity to be found in Christ and that community to be found in the church. That's what God designed us for, is for us to find those things in Christ and in the church. And so what's happening in this song is that it is awakening emotions and awakening a deep sense of transcendence that is more profound even than emotion. It's awakening that. And what hopefully we as believers do is when we hear something like this, it turns our attention toward God and that he has created a world of creativity and beauty and music to draw our attention to him, where the words to it help us to see that, you know what, God did create a world in which we have a longing for a community and for an identity that isn't grounded in our past or in where we've come from. That's what it should awaken in us. And we should pray for our unbelieving friends that when they hear something like this, that God by his grace awakens their mind and their heart so that they can see the transcendent truth behind the feeling that they sense. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. <laughs>